Alrighty. So, uh, we're going to be back in John chapter 1. And last week, uh, we, there was a section that we were looking at on John the Baptist. And we left off right before we discussed this region that he was baptizing in. Um, so I'm going to back up just a little bit uh, to get us in context. Uh, these emissaries, this deputation from the temple and the religious leaders had come to John and asked him who he was, you know, or who he thought he was and why he was doing what he was doing, why he was baptizing and so forth. And, uh, you know, he responded that he's the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make the way of the Lord straight. Um, and then he pointed to Jesus as he did throughout this time. Uh, verse 27 of chapter 1, It is he who comes after me, of whom I am not even worthy, worthy even to untie the strap of his sandal. And then it says, These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing people. Okay, so go ahead and bring that map up, Autumn. Um, we find that Bethany beyond the Jordan... Uh, the, Scholars are not completely sure where this is, all right? But uh, most uh, atlases and those who have studied this will indicate that it was right here. I'm using the laser pointer right here, okay? Bethany beyond the Jordan, all right? So here's Jericho right here. Here's the other Bethany that we'll hear about later uh, in John chapter 11, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And of course, that is right next to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting because we find, and we'll look at this uh, in just a moment, that the other Gospels, when they talk about uh, who John was preaching to, said that all of these in this region of Judea right here and from Jerusalem were coming over to Bethany beyond the Jordan, right? So consider that. I mentioned last week that you know, John wasn't passing out flyers or setting up meetings or, you know, uh, going to the people in the streets in the cities and going to the temple. He's way out here in the wilderness, man. And people are coming. This is probably 15, 20 miles. And they're probably walking. Listen, when God moves, you want to respond. And God was moving through John. And so that's where he was. Now, later, we will find uh, in John chapter 3 that he moves his ministry uh, up the Jordan. Here's the Jordan River right here. And he moves his ministry up the Jordan, and he's baptizing up here a little closer to Galilee in this area of the Decapolis. All right. So um, you can go ahead and take that map down now. Um, so, the Bethany beyond the Jordan is not to be confused with that other village, the, the place where Lazarus lived and where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, but here's, here's where it says in Mark 1, 5, um, all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, all, a lot of people were going out there. And again, we're talking, they're walking probably 15, maybe even 20 miles. Now, maybe they rode on donkeys or something like that as well. But when there's a move of God and you're seeking God, you want to go where God's moving. Amen? 
Um, I probably will mention this again Sunday in, in some more detail. I'm trying to discern uh, where the Lord wants me to go Sunday as far as our theme. Um, I think I know, but I'm continuing to pray through it. But there is a revival going on right now at Asbury University in Kentucky. So Wednesday, April 8th, there was, uh, like many Christian schools, they have chapel and uh, they require the students to attend chapel a certain number of times. So I went to two different Christian schools and they both had the same thing. Actually, the first school I went to was Grand Canyon College, which is now Grand Canyon University, and they called it chapel. And the, the school that I graduated from, from uh, whence I got my bachelor's uh, uh, degree is Baylor University, and they called it forum. <laughs> right. But it was still an opportunity for the students to be exposed to preaching and teaching and some sort of spiritual movement. So Asbury University has one of those. And, uh, you know, they had a man that preached to the students and he preached on love. I listened to not all of the message, but I listened to a, a bit of the message today. In fact, if you look on my Facebook, I posted uh, the end of the message. You can listen to the whole thing, but uh, when you post something on YouTube, you can check, hey, start at this place in the video. And so I started right at the end of the message, but he, he preached on love. That's what he preached on. And it wasn't some, you know, scintillating, emotional, you know, it was just very straightforward. You know, he's very relational guy. Um, I don't know, not somebody that you would think of as a celebrity. So the students weren't responding to this person's personality. In fact, I don't even remember his name, um, which is not disrespectful to him. I think it points to the fact that um, the Lord did something because the students after the the speaker was finished and he focused he focused on love, but he focused really pretty much on what Craig focused on on Sunday, right? Do you love God? Do you love like Jesus loves? And so he was coming from Romans chapter 12, and he was just basically saying, do we really love one another, right? Um, and that's what we should be doing because that's, that's what Christians are supposed to be all about. So worship started happening, right? The, their worship team got up there after the, the message. It's still going on today. It's still going on, Right? <laughs> so it's been going on for a week. Now, things like this have happened in various times uh, throughout the world and in our country. Um, there have been various revivals. But the point is, there are people now that are traveling to Asbury University from other colleges and universities in Kentucky and in other states, right? It's even having an impact uh, in other countries because they have... Uh, students from other countries that are attending Asbury. In fact, I saw a little, I was looking at various video clips because they're live streaming it. And uh, I clicked the live stream. I'm telling you, even over live stream, you can sense that there is definitely something happening there. And it's not excessive emotionalism. It's really not. It's not like people screaming and, you know, falling all over the place and whatever. It's just a very definite, calm, but sincere and devoted response to God, you know. And so I can, I can definitely sense the Holy Spirit is, is moving even though I'm not even in the room. Um, 
But the reason that I bring that up in this message and this teaching that I have here is, you know, it's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? You know, a reed you know, swaying in the wind? Did you go out to the wilderness to see a man dressed in fine clothing? No. You went out to see a prophet. You went out to hear the word of God. You see, you don't have to have all of these emotions and machinations and, you know, and, and I'm happy to put the stuff here on the screen and, you know, to have lights and, you know, all this other stuff. But that can't be what it's about because that's just, that's human. It's natural. It's artificial. It's not God. When God moves, he just chooses to move. And to be honest with you, we're half that equation. Are, are you seeking? Do you want God to move? Are you open to God moving? Because there's nobody leading this revival. There's not a preacher that's coming up there and orchestrating and giving a sermon every, you know, day. Um, now, that's happened before. Jonathan Edwards was uh, the person that the Lord used to ignite the first spiritual awakening in the United States. And this is way back in the 18th century. Um, and, you know, he preached. He was a very intelligent, uh, really pretty much an intellectual theologian. He was short. He wore Coke bottle glasses. I'm not kidding. And he read his sermons from a manuscript. And as he read his sermon from the manuscript, the Holy Spirit dropped in those rooms and convicted people of their sin and people fell on their faces and cried out to God to, you know, to save them. They were open, right? And God moved. So, uh, I don't know, M maybe I'll, I'll say more about this on Sunday and encourage us to, to be more open. Um, let's go to the next passage here. Um, Autumn, this will be John 1, 29 through 34. John 1, 29 through 34. So John is uh, very focused on time here. So once we get out of the prologue, which is timeless, we enter into this time period. So the first day is this meeting between John the Baptist and the religious leaders. Now we come to the next day, John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him. That is, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he in behalf of whom I said, After me is coming a man who is proven to be my superior because he existed before me. Thereby, John recognizing what the writer of the Gospel of John has already related to us, that Jesus is the timeless Word of God, the Son of God. And I did not recognize him, but so that he would be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing in water. So there is John's purpose for baptizing, right? Not to wash away people's sins, but <clears throat> to point to Jesus. And John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. That is, the Spirit remained on Jesus. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, so John's a prophet. He's paying attention to the Lord, right? And the Lord speaks to his mind, and this is what the Lord says to him, um, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now, I want to say something that I didn't put in my notes, but just occurred to me. Um, John is written in very good Greek, right? 
compared that, and this is, I, I, I can read Greek, but I am no scholar. This is coming through the testimony of those who are aware of Greek. John is good Greek. Um, Mark is grammatically not good Greek. They're both inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this, when it is quoting John, is very clumsy. If you read it, it's clumsy. It's exactly the way somebody talks, right? So if you, if you write down what somebody is saying, you're a court reporter and you write down what somebody is saying, they have a tendency to repeat themselves. Have you noticed that? You may not realize you do this, but record yourself and listen and you'll think, oh, oh why did I keep repeating myself? We circle around and we kind of say the same things again and again. And, but when you write something down, you can clean it up, right? And it's not. <laughs> so this tells me that the writer of the Gospel of John is relating exactly what John the Baptist was saying the way he was saying it. By the way, that's why Mark is not good Greek, because Mark is actually the preaching of Peter. John Mark wrote down what Peter said. That's what we have in church, early church history, telling us what the gospel of Mark is. So actually, it's a good thing that it's not good Greek. To me, it's good that this is a clumsy couple of sentences, because it's pointing to the fact that this is authentic. This is actually relating what John the Baptist said, right? So John the Baptist is a prophet, and the Lord reveals his will and intent through prophets. John realized that the purpose of God's son coming to earth was to take away the sin of the world. Now, I've mentioned this previously in my um, teaching about John, but in the gospel of John, the gospel of John is the only testimony that we have that John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see John the Baptist pointing to Jesus as Messiah, right? And the one that God has chosen. But here we find that John is uh, really letting us know that this is not just a political Messiah who is going to come and deliver Israel from Roman, uh, over, their Roman overlords. Uh, but Jesus has come to do something more important right here in John 1.29 to take away the sins of the world. He didn't, that is, Jesus didn't come to be a political leader or an earthly king. He came to take away the sin that separates human beings from God by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. John the Baptist may not have fully understood how Jesus would take away the sin of the world, but calling him the Lamb of God certainly points to the reality that Jesus would sacrifice himself in our place. The fact that God would send, a, would send a servant to suffer and give himself as a guilt offering is found in Isaiah 53. So I'm going to read that. Um, here we find the one who is like a lamb that is led to slaughter. That's Isaiah 53, 7. You'll see it in just a moment or hear it in just a moment. Jesus fulfilled every part of this amazing prophecy. So as I read this, this is Isaiah 53. Um, what did I say? 57, 53, 7 is what I said. That's correct. This is Isaiah 53, 3 through 12. Isaiah 53, 3 through 12, the New American Standard uh, Bible 2020 edition. Listen to this and realize that this was written between five and 800 years before Jesus. 
The United States hasn't been in existence for 500 years. It's a long time ago. Bless you. This is what it says. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness, and like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated, but he was pierced for our trend or our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due and his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He will see his offspring, that is, this suffering servant will see his offspring. We are the firstborn among many, he was the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He will prolong his days. He was resurrected. He lives forever. Um, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. He took up our sins. He carried our sins. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. Wow, right? That's Jesus. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, the fourth gospel doesn't explicitly record Jesus' baptism. Isn't that interesting? So here's John who's baptizing people. The other, the synoptic gospels do, and I'll read a portion of that in just a moment, but it doesn't explicitly say that John baptized Jesus. Perhaps this is to keep the focus on the surpassing greatness of the Lord because one could assume that the person baptizing is greater than the one who is being baptized. Um, but it seems apparent that the Baptist's testimony about the Spirit of God descending as a dove out of heaven is based upon Jesus' baptism. John is the fourth gospel. It was written last. Most scholars believe it was written last, <clears throat> excuse me, and was written in the 90s AD. By the time John's gospel is written, uh, all of the other gospel writers are likely dead. They've probably been martyred by that point in time. Um, I believe, as I'm reading John, I believe that it assumes that the reader or the hearer, in the case of those that are listening to it being read, is familiar with the material in the synoptic gospels. Now, as I've mentioned to you before, synoptic just means they all look at something similarly, right, from the same view. 
And if you've ever, you know, done a, a reading through the New Testament, you read Matthew and then you start reading Mark and you're like, oh, well, that's I just read that. And then you start reading Luke and Luke, you know, adds details that are not there. Uh, he has two chapters at the front that is Luke does about Jesus birth. Matthew has a little tiny section about Jesus' birth. Mark doesn't have anything about Jesus' birth. But once again, you're reading a lot of the same stories. John comes along, and it is completely different, right? Um, uh, the only miracle that is contained in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. And we won't get there for a while. But nonetheless, I think that, the, uh, that John assumes that the reader or the hearer is familiar, perhaps not with, you know, the entirety of the synoptic gospels, but the, <clears throat> the main stories about Jesus that are contained in the synoptic gospels. And he doesn't want to repeat them. He, he, you know, obviously the, the Lord inspired him to do this, motivated him to do this, but he doesn't want to do the same thing. John's entire focus friends is to demonstrate that Jesus is God. Jesus is one with the Father. John is absolutely cover to cover explicit about that. So what I'm about to read is the account of Jesus' baptism from Matthew's gospel. I want you to note John's, uh, John the Baptist's attitude of humility in his initial unwillingness to baptize Jesus. Here it is. This is Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee, <clears throat> excuse me, at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me? Notice the humility there. So Jesus doesn't have any sin to confess, right? Everyone else is being baptized as a symbol of uh, repentance and confession of sin. But Jesus wants to identify with his people. He wants to, he wants to lead the way. He wants to show people what they're supposed to do. Um, but Jesus answered and said to him, allow it at this time for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him after he was baptized. Jesus came up immediately from the water. Now listen and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending, how? As a dove and settling on him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So who saw the dove descending upon him? Well, obviously John did. This is what in our gospel of John, this is what John the Baptist says, clearly identified Jesus as the coming one. So in our gospel, the Baptist states that the reason he baptized people was in order that the son of God would be revealed to Israel. That's verse 31. God had revealed to John <clears throat> that the person upon whom the spirit remained would baptize in the Holy Spirit. That is, Jesus would be the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. That is what happened when John baptized Jesus in water, as we just saw. However, our gospel focuses not on Jesus' baptism by John, but on the witness of the Holy Spirit. In the law, there needed to be the testimony from at least two witnesses to make a case. Something Jesus actually mentions in our gospel. Uh, in uh, John eight seventeen, Jesus says that. 
So now we have John who is bearing witness and the Holy Spirit bearing witness that Jesus is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit gave testimony that Jesus is the Son of God by remaining upon him. This is manifested in a visible dove or dove-like sign. So it doesn't say a dove landed on him. It says the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. So what did that look like? I don't know. Obviously, it looked like a dove. But was it an actual dove? I, I don't know. I don't think so. But it was certainly a dove-like sign. So the Spirit anoints Jesus directly. When someone is anointed in the Bible... Um, it is usually a recognized spiritual authority that pours oil on their head and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So if you uh, if you check out the anointing of David as king, it is Samuel who anoints David as king. He pours oil on his head and then it says that the spirit came rushing on him from that point forward. Well, that's what Messiah means. That's what the word Christ means. It means anointed one. This idea of anointing somebody is a way of saying God has chosen this person to do this. God has chosen this person for this task. Well, Jesus is the chosen one. I've mentioned this before, but that's why this uh, television series, uh, there's three seasons out now called The Chosen, uh, was called by that name. It is about Jesus and it's about his life. Um, it takes many liberties. It fills out characters in ways that the, the Bible doesn't say, you know, specifically. Uh, Matthew is, to this point, in my opinion, perhaps the most interesting character. They make Matthew uh, somewhat autistic. He's kind of like a savant. He's really good with numbers and he's always writing things down, which of course, you know, that makes sense, right? Matthew has a gospel and so forth. Well, we don't know. We have no, nothing that says that Matthew was autistic or anything like that. And that's not disparaging one way or the other. It's just saying that Dallas Jenkins, who wrote all of this, is taking liberties, but he's staying with the text on the whole and, uh, you know, very definitely elevating Jesus. The guy that plays Jesus, Jonathan Rumi, is really good. Um, in fact, maybe my favorite Jesus that I've ever watched. Uh, really makes you want to pay attention to what Jesus says. Um, but it's called the chosen for a reason, because Jesus is the chosen one, not a chosen one. Right? Each of us who are genuinely Christians are chosen, right? But I'm not the chosen one. Jesus is the chosen one. That's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. And here we see it is the Holy Spirit himself that anoints Jesus, John the Baptist didn't anoint Jesus. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, but he didn't anoint Jesus. He didn't have the authority to do that. God himself anointed Jesus by sending the Holy Spirit upon him. Um, so the Holy Spirit gave testimony that Jesus is the Son of God by remaining upon him. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus wouldn't be working alone when he emptied himself. Okay, we saw, you know, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as if the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. Philippians chapter 2 says, um, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God as a thing to be held onto or grasped, but emptied himself. When Jesus became a man, he was 100% man. He didn't stop becoming God or being God, but he emptied himself of his divine privileges and uh, chose to be completely dependent upon the Father for everything that he did. Okay? He didn't act independently, even though, uh, you know, he's one with God. So even if he's independent, he's not really independent. But my point is that Jesus can genuinely show us how we're to live our lives because he lived a life of absolute dependence upon the Father as we need to. And he moved in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, as we need to. Let me go back to that revival that's going on right now. Um, and at Asbury University, it's pretty apparent that it's just the Holy Spirit that's moving. Like I said, there's, there's no person there that's orchestrating this. They didn't say, hey, let's do an eight-day revival. Everybody come every night. We're going to have a preacher and we're going to have some music. It's going to be good. Now, I um, was called to preach at an eight-day revival uh, that came to my church uh, a year after I got saved. North Phoenix Baptist Church, a preacher named James Robinson came to our church. You can still find him here in the mid-cities. He uh, does a ministries on television and so forth. But he was doing uh, person-to-person, face-to-face meetings back then. This is in, now you'll know how old I am. This was in 1978. And it was an eight-day revival from Sunday to Sunday. Okay, I guess that's technically nine days, all right? No, it's eight days, right? Okay. Um, in any event, on the first day of the revival, that first Sunday, I mean, they had the same thing. They had music and they had a testimony and, you know, some famous person would get up there that's a Christian. And then James Robinson would preach. And I'm telling you what, dude, that dude can preach. And uh, the first night that they did the revival, I went forward to rededicate my life to the Lord. I was just very convicted that I, you know, didn't want to be apathetic you know, uncaring, wanted to really be on fire for the Lord. And uh, I mentioned to the counselor that I had sat down with that I believed that the Lord was calling me to preach. And that launched me on this uh, lengthy journey that I've gotten into. But this revival that's going on at Asbury right now is not led by someone like that. It's just the Holy Spirit moving. Um, We need that movement of the Spirit upon us. We need to be clothed in him and within us. If we're going to do anything that is meaningful, um, we're going to see at the end of John's gospel that Jesus imparts the Holy Spirit to his disciples. This is from John 20, 22, John 20, 22. And when he, that is Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Wow. At the beginning of the book of Acts, 120 disciples were immersed and filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This is Acts 2.4, Acts 2.4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. Now, I won't talk about tongues right now. It's a controversial topic. But the point is, this was an external manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit just like the dove sign was an external manifestation 
of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon that person. Every time <clears throat> the, uh, the gospel moved to a new region. So at the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8, Jesus said, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. Right? So Jerusalem was where they were. That was the city. You saw the map earlier that I put up there. Judea was like the surrounding region, kind of like the state, if you will. Okay. Samaria was the people that were unlike them. Um, they were um, outsiders that had been moved into Israel when the Babylonian captivity happened. And so they kind of did things their own way, and the Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jewish people. And so Jesus was saying, no, this gospel is going to move to the people you don't like too, and then to the remotest part of the world. In Acts, every time the gospel moves into a new region like that, the people receive the Holy Spirit, and there is a visible manifestation of them speaking in tongues, which is what you find in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descends and, and lands on everybody's head like flames of fire. Well, uh, Matthew had said, uh, John the Baptist is recorded in Matthew as saying, that Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? Which represents the, the purification, the trial that we're going to go through, those sorts of things. Um, but nonetheless, every time the Spirit moved, uh, the gospel moved into a new region, the Holy Spirit descended upon people, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. This was a visible manifestation and a verification to everyone that the Holy Spirit had genuinely come upon these people, right? So when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2, it was 10 days after Jesus ascended back into heaven. So it's Jesus that poured it out. Listen to what... <clears throat> The Apostle Peter says in Acts 2.33, this is Acts 2.33, the Apostle Peter is explaining what this manifestation of the Spirit is about. Peter says, Therefore, since he, that is Jesus, has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. You don't get the Holy Spirit without Jesus. Okay. You don't get all these good feelings and jump around in the room and whatever and say, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus, right? There is no prophecy that isn't focused on Jesus. In, uh, in uh, the, uh, the revelation uh, that was given to John, okay, this same author, the, the writer of John's gospel, John the, the Beloved, wrote the book of Revelation. And at the end of Revelation, um, an angel tells John that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If you hear somebody that claims to be speaking in tongues or testifying uh, or prophesying about something and it's not focused on Jesus, run out of the room. Okay? Satan mimics God's work all the time. He's a faker, right? And he uses that to deceive people. And so because there's a lot of emotion that surrounds people receiving over the overflow, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, people may mimic that or they may be they may be influenced by the emotion, but not the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to be careful of all of these sorts of things. 
So this is the spirit baptism that John promised Jesus would officiate. It is the same baptism that Jesus continues to offer and only Jesus can perform it. So you go to a meeting, it might be a, you know, a different type of church than ours. And they may have, uh, you know, a time when they invite people to come forward to be baptized in the spirit. They may lay hands on the person. Uh, they may, you know, put oil on their head and so forth. Um, but Jesus is the one that officiates the infilling and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So I've officiated many baptisms. I've baptized a lot of people, but I'm not baptizing them in my name. I'm not baptizing them in the name of our church. I'm baptizing them in water as a testimony of what's happened inside of them if they have Jesus, right? That they've died to their old life, that they've been raised to walk a new life. And I baptize them not in the name of Lifewell Church, but in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. When I receive this, the, the Holy Spirit, when I receive this outpouring of the Spirit, this baptism of the Spirit, this infilling of the Spirit, I receive it from the hand of Jesus. If you want the filling of the Holy Spirit, you talk to Jesus. You ask him to fill you because he's the one that pours it out, right? So I would tell you, open yourself up, right? Receive everything that God wants to give you. If you've never been filled with the spirit, ask and seek and knock. Listen to what it says in Luke eleven thirteen. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You shouldn't be trying to stumble through life without the Holy Spirit. We need his guidance, his comfort, his counsel, his empowering every day, just even in our regular daily lives. But if you let the Lord use you in some form of ministry to reach out to other people, to testify about Jesus, you absolutely need the spirit because the spirit is the only one that convicts anyone, right? He convicts people of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. We're not the judge. The Holy Spirit convicts people. Um, again, I may end up mentioning a bunch of this again on Sunday, but uh, one of the authors that I read that was commenting on revival um, said, revival doesn't begin in ecstasy. It begins in agony. We agonize over our sin. You see, when you get in the presence of a holy God, you immediately recognize that you don't have anything to offer. You immediately recognize your sin. Um, we fall at his feet. Think about Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 6, when he was called, he was ministering in the temple, apparently, and the God filled the temple. It says the train of his robe, that is God's robe, filled the temple. And there, was the, there were these angelic beings called seraphs, seraphim. In Hebrew, the im ending is the equivalent of our s ending. Seraphs, seraphim, right? Multiple angels. The word seraph in Hebrew means fire. These are angels that can only be described as fire, right? And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah immediately falls on his face and he says, oh, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. You don't exalt yourself in the presence of God. You fall on your face. And then he lifts you up. Ezekiel is overwhelmed by the presence and the power of God, and he falls on his face. 
And then the Spirit of God fills him and lifts him up on his feet. I pray that for you. I pray that for you. I pray that for me. I pray that for our church. All right? We'll come back again next week, and we'll be in John 1, 35 to the end of the chapter. Thank you for joining us online. God bless you.